again. Those of you just joining us online, glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to invite Julia to come on up. She's going to read the scripture for us. Uh, Julia, would you prefer to hold the mic or just have a stand? Just stand? Okay. Uh, Today is actually kind of an interesting day. Today is week 52 of this series in John. So we've been an entire year of Sundays in the Gospel of John, and I think that's pretty cool. I get a kick out of knowing that we did that, so I'm going to ask Julia to read. We're going to be in John 14. She's going to read verses 1 through 11, but we're going to be in John 14, 1 through 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there? to prepare a place for you. And if you go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how do we know where we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one one to my father except me. If you really want me to know who, if you will know my father as well, from now on, you will know him and see, have seen him. Oh, wait. Jesus answered, do you know me, Philip, after, even after I have among you such a long time? Anyway, who, anyone who has seen me and seen the father How can you say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I am the Father and that the Father is me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me and who is is doing his, his work. Believe me when I say that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of his works themselves. Thanks, Julia. We've done this before, but it is tradition in some parts of the church uh, that when someone reads the scripture, someone will say the word of the Lord, and everybody will say, thanks be to God. So let's try it. The word of the Lord. And just as a reminder, there are places, even still in our world right now, that do not have the scriptures in the way that we have them. So when we say, thanks be to God, we are serious about that, that we are thankful uh, that we have God's word on your phone, in a Bible, where, pretty much wherever you want, you can grab the Bible. Uh, another thing I'm thankful for today, I don't know if you guys can tell, but it's slightly a little warm in here. Uh, that's because our air conditioning is, is kind of half working right now, and they were coming Friday to repair it, but then they have to come Monday. And I was a little frustrated because I don't like to be sweaty, but then I remembered this morning, you know what, a year ago, we were sitting outside. So it's pretty good to be in here. We got fans, we got lights, we got electricity, we're live streaming. So it's a good day to be together. So what I want to do today is just walk through, as we start this section of John, is just walk through 
uh, kind of a timeline of the recent events in John, just to kind of catch you back up, make sure you know where we are in John, because I like to set that up, because uh, if you remember a gospel, part of what makes a gospel a gospel is that you kind of insert yourself into the story and see yourself as kind of participating in it. And so uh, the disciples spend these years with Jesus, right? This very short version of the story of the life of the disciples with Jesus. And it's all leading up to this place that they find themselves in right now uh, towards the end of John. So if we go back to the high point of kind of the triumphal entry of Jesus in John 12, that's very recent for us. The disciples are in a very different place there than they seem to be here, right? And so that's where we've been in the recent memories of these men, okay? Jesus has been celebrated, but now we've seen Jesus teach some confusing words uh, about what's going to happen in the next, uh, frankly, in the next few hours as we find ourselves in John 14. John said, just you remember a few weeks ago, that night has come as Judas left. And that's both to communicate that it literally was nighttime, but also that now this is a sort of a new chapter opening where things are dark. Uh, and that's what's going on here. So, so these disciples are troubled, right? Anybody can relate to that? I can certainly relate to feeling troubled. They're dismayed. The trouble of their hearts is actually only a shadow of the real trouble they don't even know about yet. And so Jesus, knowing these men, remember the relationship he had with them, they were his disciples. He was their rabbi. They like did life with, together with him. So they, he knew them well. I'm sure he could read facial expressions and body language in these young men. And so he speaks right to this issue in the first words of chapter 14, verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, right? And so in the original Greek, the language here carries a, a, a firmness and a resolve. Uh, I, I tend to be reminded of like, godly men in my life who have spoken to me this way. Uh, but firmness, resolve, kind of a, a conviction. There's a command in the tone of Jesus. But also, these words would have been spoken very gently in tone. So it's a strong kind of, hey, remember this, but in a gentle tone. And so when I was a boy, I loved playing baseball. Um, I thought I was going to play in a spring league this year, but all their games are on Sundays, and that's kind of bad for my job. I was like, I got a thing I do on Sundays, well, I guess I can't do it. But I had a coach named Harold, Coach Harold. He was the best, had the sweetest mustache I've ever seen, and was an amazing baseball coach. Uh, and uh, the way that my little league worked is you kept your coach all the way through like the three years you were in each division. So I had Coach Harold for, I think, three or four years because I was the same age as his son. So we played together on the same team. Some of my best memories um, I, my dad, I visited his house. He still has my jersey from the all-star team that I was on. It says Holiday on it. And, and I moved to another area. That became my nickname because I wore that jersey. So some of my best memories are from baseball field. And, and he was the best coach that I've ever had and maybe that I've ever seen. Uh, he never screamed at us on the field. Like he, and we were, bo we were 10, 11, 12-year-old boys. You know, we weren't college men. We were boys, and he never embarrassed us. He never screamed at us. He just instructed us, and he did a great job. And, and I can think of several specific moments, you know, kind of in a big game, all-star game, and you feel all the pressure when you're a kid uh, and you're playing kind of at that level. And, and I remember I was, 
Uh, I had an at-bat where I was kind of, it was 0-2, and I was really wavering in my confidence, and Coach Harold called time. He called me over to the uh, third base coach's kind of area, and he knelt down in front of me. He, he kind of pulled me in. He looked me in the eyes, and I remember he just said something to me, basically to the effect of, be strong, son. You, you can do this. Be strong. That was basically his message to me. And as I read this week, and I learned a little bit about the language and the tone that Jesus used here, that's the kind of tone I imagine him using with these young men. Hey, I I know what's happening. Don't let your hearts be troubled. It's a command, but it's a soft kind of invitational command. Now, because of the nature of what the scriptures are for us, that they are for all of God's people over all of time. Jesus' statement here is not just for these disciples here in John, but for any of us who will follow him. And so if we understand and apply John 14, 1 through 6 in kind of the right way, it's really a good medicine for our hearts because, you know, we live in a time of troubled hearts, don't we? And we've just lived through a time of really troubled hearts. And, And and, and there seem to be maybe some clouds on the horizon again with that same trouble. And, and I don't know if you, you knew this, but Christians are not immune from the trouble of this world. Jesus is going to say a little bit later in John, in this world you will have trouble. And so we're not immune from troubled hearts either uh, as we struggle with our imperfect faith and how do we deal with life. So when Jesus said let not your hearts be troubled. He, he's using a very picturesque kind of language, kind of wording here. The idea is don't let your hearts shudder. It's a good way to think about it. In the previous chapter in John 13, the same word is used in John 13, 21, as Judas goes astray. That Jesus, remember, his, he said his heart was troubled. And now he's telling his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. And so, uh, especially in the light of the cross that is coming for Jesus, listen to the, the, the strong word that Jesus is saying to the disciples. Right? He's saying, look, look, it seems like the world is falling all around. John has rightly said it's dark now. Darkness has fallen. Everything is lost. It seems like darkness is kind of caving in over you. It's going to engulf you. But don't let your heart shudder. Don't let it shudder. And then he explains how you do this. Okay, Jesus, that's nice to say, but we don't always control our own hearts, right? I'm not in charge of my heart most of the time. It just kind of does what it does. But he explains this relationship of how to be in charge of your heart at the end of verse one. He says, believe in God and believe also in me. Now, the way to have an untroubled heart, which I have been saying, you know, since, I don't know, a couple years ago, but especially in the last year, this may be one of the most strong witnesses that we have to the world, to be an untroubled spirit, to be a non-anxious presence in the world. And so the, the way to an untroubled heart is to believe in God and to believe in Jesus, which if you remember, and we'll get there in a few weeks, is the point of John's gospel. He tells us, I wrote these things down so that you might believe. And so you believe in Jesus, you believe in God, and you end up with an untroubled heart is what Jesus is saying. This is the the way this works. And and really, this is the hard part about Christianity and the God, one of the hard parts about Christianity and the God. That's it. That's all there is to it. Jesus doesn't say, you want to have an untroubled heart? All right, get your pens out because the religious list is coming. 
That's not what he says. The, the verb tenses in the original language would probably more accurately say something like this. Keep on believing in God and keep on believing in me. So if, if we would continue to focus our minds and our souls on who God is, as we've just sung about, his sovereignty, his power, his presence to us, then our hearts would not be troubled in the way that they so often are. Right? Remember Peter on the water. When did he get into trouble? When he took his eyes off of Jesus and he started to see the storm around. But Jesus knew that the disciples in this text and all of us who are following him now or who, who are trying in fits and starts and stumbles to follow him, we would need more explanation. And so he goes on to, to give some specific instructions to us on kind of the nature of, of this belief that will deliver us out of our troubled hearts. Look at verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So, so th see what Jesus is doing here. He's telling them what's true, and then he's saying, now think about, I'm telling you I'm going to go prepare a place, and if that's not true, how could there be many rooms? Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff we could say here about Jewish wedding practices and what this actually means, that their homes were built kind of with a, uh, a central uh, sort of garden, and there were rooms all around, and the patriarch of the family would build extra rooms. And, and many of you have probably heard some of that stuff before. If not, come talk to me. It's really interesting. But... That's not where we're going to go with this today. And so what we see is that an effective kind of guardrail in your heart for having a troubled heart is to believe what? That Jesus is preparing a place for us. That he's preparing somewhere for us to be with him forever. So we all know the effect that having something to look forward to has on us, right? Many of us are experiencing that effect more and more. We're starting to be able to, I look forward to going to the movies again. I look forward to going to an Orioles game again. I look forward to going whatever. And in 2020, that's part of what made life so difficult. Not only did we have the trouble of COVID, right? But we had the trouble of not having anything to look forward to other than being in my house all day again, right? And so all of the things we could have looked forward to were removed. And so we were just kind of left with our troubled hearts for that season. On a much more eternally significant level, this is kind of what Jesus is getting at here. When you believe in him, you have eternity with him to look forward to. You will be with him forever in heaven, okay? Keeping our mind's eye, our soul's eye fixed on this reality is a cure for our troubled hearts. That, that's what... Jesus is trying to help them see that we guard our hearts against the trouble that they get into when we keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, as the author of Hebrews would say. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, which if you haven't read, I would recommend to you, he called this the inconsolable longing. I'm going to read you a fairly long quote. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts, we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbed when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. What's he saying? Every human heart has this 
desire in it. I, I always would tell you, I think this is connected to what the writer of Ecclesiastes meant when he said that God has written eternity on our hearts. We have talked about this before, but all of us have an idea of what, when we say heaven, what we mean by that. Another way of speaking about this is we all have an idea of what the good life is. And we all have functional saviors that we think will take us to that good life. Right now, so many of us in our day and age, including those of us in this room, and I'm not immune from this either, are caught up in kind of the whirlwind of thinking that different kinds of political systems can get us the good life, right? Think about how much we talk about it and how much we're frustrated about it or happy about it, whichever side you end up on, right? This is why so many like sociologists are starting to say politics is, a, is the new religion, we are attaching religious sort of ways of thinking to political parties and to political thinking. But as I've said before, I'll keep saying it again, no political system can fully bring into reality what that desire is in your heart. You have an eternity-shaped hole in your heart and nothing else is going to satisfy it but your creator. This is why we continue to find ourselves troubled in heart if we believe that, right? This is why it doesn't work. Like I know I'm picking on politics here. We can apply this to any other human attempt to find the good life apart from Jesus. Sexuality, economics, your family. It doesn't matter. This is why we have to keep going, to, to pick on politics again, we have to keep going back over and over and over again in our political pursuits. We keep thinking, oh, this time it'll work, this time it'll work, this time it'll work, and what happens? It doesn't work. And we do it over and over and over and over, and we blink, and our life has gone by, and we're still left, as C.S. Lewis said, on our deathbed, not knowing anybody in our life because we're there, and, and we still have this basic desire for the good life, what we Christians would call heaven. And we're still right where we started, right where these disciples are in John, with hearts that are troubled. But Jesus tells us how our unsatisfied longing can be fulfilled and how it will be fulfilled. He says, in my father's house are many rooms or dwelling places, right? Don't get caught up in like, I only get a room? That's not the point. The idea here is that he's preparing permanent dwelling places for us with him. Permanent. That can't be taken from you. No marauder is going to come in and steal this permanent house in heaven, right? When life falls in, when troubles come for us, which they will, we find comfort, we find rest for our troubled hearts in knowing that the fact is we have in Jesus an eternal home prepared for us. This is why cultivating a deep, underlying sort of foundation of heart realization that there is an eternal home for us with Jesus is so vital for us. So vital for your spirituality, for your life with Jesus. Cultivating this realization, this belief that there is an eternal home for us with Jesus. This is the pathway to creating in us the ability to be a non-anxious presence in the world, to be an untroubled heart in the middle of trouble. John 14, 2 tells us that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. This is a key element of our comfort, right? How many of you like to, now, let's pretend COVID didn't happen. How many of you like to have guests in your home, right? 
I, I like it. Some of you, many of you in this room have been in my home as my guests, right? I've had made dinner for you, whatever. And uh, my wife would tell you that a, a couple days before someone visits for a meal, I go into this mode uh, where I'm just thinking and like devising of like how the meal is going to be. And like, I, I might buy like a special hot sauce for whoever's coming over, right? Yeah. And, and so I go into this mode where I'm like, oh, I got to get everything just right. And just, it's got to be perfect, right? And so uh, I'm looking forward this fall already. I'm going to, you know, rebuild my little fire, uh, fire pizza oven out there. And, and I'm inviting some of you over for dinner. This is, you know, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to get the wood ready and make the dough and get the, you know, all the stuff. And this is what Jesus is talking about as his own desire, that he's going to prepare a place for you, right? And think about when he's saying this to these disciples, he knows every little thing that they like. He's been with them for years. He knows how they like their fish cooked. He knows what they like, you know, to do when they wake up in the morning. I don't know if they had coffee, but he knows how they like their coffee. They definitely didn't have coffee. Jesus is preparing this special place. And for each one of us who follow him, we can know that he is preparing a special, a place for us with him forever. So have you ever done this thought experiment where you think to yourself, what would my dwelling place with Jesus look like? Like what would be in there? Because Jesus knows you intimately. He knows every little thing you like. He knows your favorite color. He knows what you like to do. And so what, what, what would that be like? Even now, think of that. Can you feel, as you begin to think of Jesus cares for me enough to, he knows my favorite color. Like maybe you begin to feel some of the troubles in your soul begin to just lift a little bit, even in this moment as we do this exercise, right? This is part of what we mean when we talk about meditating on Jesus and spending time in his presence, in his word, thinking on these things so that you can be at peace in a troubled world. And this is what Jesus is inviting the disciples to do here in John. Believe in me. Believe in God. Keep your mind focused, your heart focused, your soul focused on me. Right? He's kneeling down to us on the baseball diamond and saying, be strong here. You can do this. He's preparing a wonderful place for you, for me, for everyone that follows him, and that brings us comfort. Now, some people will accuse this kind of teaching as escapism, right? And maybe you've heard this saying, I've heard it so many times, you are so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, right? Anybody ever heard that? I've certainly heard that. And I got to tell you, based on this text and many others, I don't, I'm not buying it. That's just not true. You can't be too heavenly minded and end up not earthly good. Now, you can be too pridefully minded and be no earthly good. You can be too religiously minded and be no earthly good. But I don't think you can actually be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. The entire story of the Bible is God's story of inviting you into life with him forever. That's what the point of the Bible is. That God is inviting you into his glory, inviting you to partake in his self, in his nature as we become more like him. So how could setting our minds and our hearts on that reality make us no earthly good? It's impossible. The reality of our heavenly home, the good life that we're going to have with Jesus forever, helps us guard our troubled hearts, which in turn sets us free to live on the mission that God has of making all things new and redeeming and reconciling people to himself by faith in Jesus. So when you Keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, is another way to say it. 
then you are not anxious or troubled in this world. So again, my question to us is how much are we setting our minds in this place? How often are we stopping everything we do to set our minds on Christ? Another way to ask the question is, is how often are we, as Colossians 3 says, how often are we setting our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are below? How real is your heavenly home to you? Do you think about your heavenly home? How real is your eternal place with Jesus in the midst of your life? Let's keep going. Verse 3. Jesus is speaking here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So now this is like the other side of the coin of heaven, if you will. It, 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 heaven is not just some place that is far off that we're going to escape to. Heaven is about who is there. It's not about the place. It's about who's in that place. So Jesus' logic here is really solid, right? He's, uh, as if we're surprised, he's the most brilliant person that's ever lived. His logic is pretty solid. He's essentially saying that if he's going to go through all of the effort to go and prepare this place for us to be with him... Of course, he's going to come and get us to be there with him. Otherwise, it, right? As, as they might say down where I'm from in Florida, that don't make no sense. He's going to prepare a place and bring us to him. It's like me throwing a huge dinner party at my house, getting everything ready, putting the plates out, and I didn't invite anybody. I mean, I will get to eat a lot, but it's kind of pointless. It doesn't make sense. Of course he's going to make sure he comes back to get us if he's going to prepare a place. And he is going to prepare a place, so of course he's going to come and get us to be with him. Now, I will come again is actually in the present tense, which is Jesus saying, I am already coming again. I am continually coming again. I am coming now and I will be coming and so in the New Testament, there are 318 uh, references or allusions to the fact that Jesus is going to return and take us to be with him personally. This is what we believe as an Alliance Church, that Jesus is our coming king, that a bodily, he's coming back bodily to get us. And so we're going to see him face to face. But we also see from the language that Jesus is already, that Jesus is using here, is that he's already coming into the world as well, okay? This is really important so that, so that we see the already not yet nature of the reality of Jesus in our midst and in our life. Jesus is coming, yes. Don't hear me say he's not coming. He is coming bodily to bring us back with him, but Jesus is also here now in the life of his church, this, you are his body. You are his presence in the world now. This is why this in-person gathering has mattered so much to us. Because we believe in a God who became incarnate in the flesh, literally into the meat. He became one of us with a body. And so th this is how we see the presence of Jesus in the world. And we're so thankful for technology and living in the time we live that we're able to do this. But nothing can replace being together to see the body of Christ in, in its fleshly form. And so right now in our neighborhood, in this neighborhood, not far from here, the presence of Christ is gathering in like five different churches that I know the pastors and I know the people that are there. And that's 
Christ in Lansdowne, in Baltimore Highlands, and, and in this area, right? Jesus is showing himself to be present in the world now, even as we await his return face to face. And Jesus is saying, even now, I am coming. I am coming, even now. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And I just want to pause. This is a side note. Anytime you read the Bible and it calls you beloved, grab onto that. That's who you are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Paul in Philippians 1 said it this way, yet, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My, di- my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So he's caught in this tension, this paradox of Christianity that we, yes, we want to be fully in the presence of Christ, but he's put us in this life now. And so if we understand this reality, then John 14, 1 through 6, actually can be one of the most comforting passages in the Bible. Uh, there was a story of a Puritan preacher who was dying. His name was Henry Venn. And while he was uh, on his deathbed, this is what was told about him. The prospect of being with Jesus made him so high-spirited and jubilant that his doctor said that his joy at dying kept him alive another fortnight. So he was on his deathbed, and he was so happy about dying to go see Jesus that he stayed alive for a little bit longer. Right? We get great comfort from the fact that Jesus is coming to take us to be with him, and that actually gives us strength for this world. Uh, a while ago, I did a series of daily audio devotionals. Remember the daily? We were doing that for a while. And we went through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so I was reminded of this passage this week from 1 Thessalonians. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. This is a little bit of a long text, but bear with me. It says this, For we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, so this is where our comfort is meant to come from. Though we live in a world of trials and tribulation and trouble, as the book of Titus says, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like in the midst of the trouble, we still wait for the day that is to come. This is our comfort. One that Jesus is inviting us to continually think on and to live into. That Jesus will take us to be with him. Whatever happens in this life, you can know that, you know what, I've got a place with Jesus. No one can take that from me, and he's coming to get me. So we could spend an entire morning on this concluding statement of Jesus, but, but look at verse 4 and following. He says, you, Jesus said, you know the way to where I am going. And then Thomas, and probably Thomas is kind of speaking for all of us here and all the disciples who are there. 
He didn't understand. So in verse five, he says, Lord, we do not know where you were going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus responds with uh, one of his I am statements. This may be the mo- one of the most quoted Bible verses that you know, right? You, you all probably have heard this. Even if you've spent no time in church, you've probably heard it just as a result of our uh, culture and the way Christianity has been mixed with it. And so you might know this text. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So troubled hearts, your troubled heart, my troubled heart needs to be reminded and to remember that the presence of Jesus is everything. That's what this is all about. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not the path to the way, the truth, and the life. He is himself the way, the truth, and the life. And so we, we can get, I want to just hammer on this last point because we can get off here and we get ourselves into superstition and we don't even realize it. Jesus is not the pathway to heaven. Jesus himself is what heaven is about. He is himself what heaven is about. Heaven, the good life, is being with Jesus forever. This is why Jesus said this the way he did. He didn't answer Thomas's question with a list of religious requirements because there isn't a list you can follow that will get you to Jesus. Jesus gives you life with him and you simply trust in it and you come to him. And yes, it's too good to be true, but trust it. This is the gospel of Jesus. That you come to him and you get life with him. That you, as John says, that you believe in him and in believing you have eternal life. So when you ask, like Thomas, well, well, how do I get to heaven? How do I do this? Jesus, from the Father, as he said, he doesn't say anything apart from the Father. From the Father and through his spirit is answering to us this morning, just come to me. This is all about me. Come to me, my presence is literally heaven. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am everything. Come to me. That's what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, the the privilege to be able to gather in this room. We thank you that uh, we're inside and we're gathered together. And I just pray that um, this morning we would dive deeper into you so that our hearts would, would be set free from the trouble we find our hearts in so often, and that we would be those non-troubled hearts in our group of friends or at work or wherever it is that we find ourselves, that we would be odd and different because we have our eyes set on a different place. And the good life has a different definition for us than it has for people around us. And Father, would you make us those who are ready to talk about the hope that's in us? And so, Spirit, we ask for your Uh, You're filling this week as we go out from here that we would be renewed in our pursuit of you and and of Jesus. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to stand and uh, we're going to have communion together uh, in just a couple minutes after we uh, have our benediction. But uh, we're going to close our public service and you've got a couple minutes uh, to grab yourself communion elements back there. There are some pre-sealed ones and some kind of more standard ones, I guess, and some hand sanitizer. So Uh, however you're comfortable doing that, and then we'll come back in this room and participate in communion and some prayer together.
uh, before we close our time all the way. For those of you watching online, uh, I do want to just invite you uh, to respond uh, to what we've said today, that if this is your first time hearing this, that Jesus is calling you to himself, then I just want to invite you to respond by trusting in him. And if you want to let us know that you've done that or you just need prayer, you can go to lansdown.church. There's a button there that says connect, and we would love to connect with you. So for the rest of us who are already following Jesus, our response is going to be at the table in just a few minutes. So make sure you grab those elements. This is from Numbers chapter 6 as we close kind of our public service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.